Romans chapter 10. Here's what Paul writes. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put ashamed be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray over these verses this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would stir any heart here who has never trusted in you as Savior and Lord. Lord, if there's someone here who is trusting in their works, I pray that you would remove any distraction that they would hear in their heart and their mind and make a decision for you today. I pray that you would work a powerful work in our, in our body this, this, this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have two questions I want you to seriously consider today. There are two questions that you might have heard before, but they are questions that are critical, and I would like everyone here to seriously consider these questions. And the first question is this, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? It's an incredibly important question. None of us are guaranteed the end of the day. If you were to die today, do you know for sure you would spend eternity in heaven? What would your answer to that be? Would it be, yes, I know I would go to heaven. Praise God, that is great. But maybe your answer is, man, I I sure hope so. Or maybe, I, I don't know if I would go to heaven or not. Or maybe even you're sitting there and you're saying, There is no way I will be in heaven if I died today. Remember the answer to that question. The second question I want you to seriously consider is this. If you were to die today and you stood before God in heaven and he said this, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? If he said, why should I let you into my heaven, 
what would your answer be? Think about that. I believe these two questions are the most important questions you'll ever be asked. Because the answer to those questions will determine your eternal destination. They will determine where you spend eternity. So they're incredibly critical in life. And so silently think about how you would answer these. Are you sure you'd go to heaven? If you answered, I'm not sure, or man, I hope so, or you answered, not a chance, then I believe this sermon's going to have the best news you've ever heard. Or if, and, and if the second question, why should God let you into heaven, if your answer was something like, because I'm a pretty good person, my good outweighs my bad. Or because I was baptized, or, or some answer like that, again, I believe this sermon's going to have the best news you ever heard. It's going to relieve you from guilt and from the burden of works. I think it's an incredibly important issue. We've been kind of going over, I don't know what to call it. I, I, I've been calling it a healthy church. It's kind of church 101. What does it mean to be a church? We talked about Lord's Supper and baptism, elders and deacons. And I'm not saying this is the order in which it should have been dealt with, but today we're going to talk about salvation. Because to be a healthy church, we need to have a proper understanding of what salvation is. And so I wanted to focus our thoughts today because salvation takes more than one sermon, but today we're just going to focus our thoughts in Romans 10 and see if we can answer the question, what is salvation? How do we obtain salvation? This is the most important message you're going to hear. And so what is salvation? What is it? Well, first of all, salvation is trusting in Jesus' righteousness. Look in verses 1 through 8. See, the danger many people have when, and the danger that they face when they think about where they spend eternity is that they depend on their good works, their religious works, in some form, the things they do, that's what they're trusting in. That was the same issue Paul was dealing with the Jewish people in Paul's day. He had a concern. Verse 1 says, I have a concern for them about their salvation. I'm not sure they are saved, he says. In fact, I know they're not because they are trusting in what they do. And I'll never get anyone to heaven. And so their own righteousness would ever do the trick. So Paul begins describing what righteousness is, what kind of righteousness God demands from us. If it's not our own righteousness, what righteousness is he talking about? And so and when we're trusting in Jesus' righteousness, that righteousness, first of all, is not simply zeal for God. It's not just a zeal for God. Verse 2, I can testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. The Jewish people had a zeal for God. They had, they had a desire to know God and to, to do things for God. Uh, the idea of zeal could be described as an eager, intense interest in God. And zeal's not necessarily a bad thing. Believers should have zeal. And, and later on in Romans 12, 11, he says, Don't lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And the New American Standard says, Don't be lacking in zeal. But it's a zeal that comes from the Holy Spirit. 
It is not their own zeal. It's, 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 it's a zeal from the Holy Spirit, but that's what believers should have. If someone's trusting in zeal, just an intense interest in God, I want to know all about God, or I like the things of God, that kind of zeal is not enough for salvation. Paul knows that because that's the way Paul was. He says, uh, talking about himself in Acts 22, he, he gives a testimony about himself, and he says, he continued, this is Paul speaking, I'm a Jewish man, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of G- G- Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriar- pa- patriarchal law. He was very strict in his following the law. He did lots of good things according to the law. He says, being zealous for God just as you are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to bring those who were imprisoned there to be punished in Jerusalem. Paul was zealous for the traditions of Jewish law. He was so zealous that he would kill Christians because it was threatening the Jewish traditions. And he would go and he would bind up men and women and he would put them in prison because they were Christians. He was very zealous and and was very um, much uh, about the Jewish law. He, He was very diligent in that. In fact, in Galatians 1.14, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Zealousness helped him advance in religion, but it did nothing for his relationship with Jesus Christ. Zealousness is not salvation. So are you trusting and your zealousness about religious traditions to get to heaven? That's something we need to consider. Is it our zealousness? The righteousness God demands is not simply zealousness. It's also not personal righteousness. Verse 3 and 4, because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is speaking about his lost countrymen, and they said they've disregarded the righteousness that God has provided through the person of Jesus Christ and worked to establish their own righteousness. They wanted to look at their own good things. This is the most common and deadly mistake we make when we're talking about our eternal destination. Why should I let you into my heaven? We might say, because I'm a good person. I've been baptized. There's all kinds of things that I've done. I've served my church. People think God's something as a cosmic Santa Claus, where he's got a list of good little boys and girls and a list of bad little boys and girls, and they're hoping while they do enough good stuff, it'll get on the good list. And at the end times, that all their good has added up to just enough to get into heaven. Is that how you perceive salvation? You're trusting in your own works. Listen to what Scripture says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. More than that, 
He says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not all these good things that I do. That's all loss. That's all filth, he'll say in a minute. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based on faith. Gaining Christ and knowing Christ isn't the righteousness of of doing stuff. Doing good toward the law. It is based in faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 and 22 says, Now, apart from the law, there is God's righteousness has been revealed. And when he talks about the law, he's just talking about all the good works. There is a righteousness that's apart from those good works. He said it's attested by the law and prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there's no distinction. God's righteousness that he demands is found apart from our good works, and it's found in faith in Jesus Christ. So back in Romans 10, it says we need to submit, we need to submit our righteousness to God's righteousness and surrender our good works, letting them go in order to obtain forgiveness. Now, I'm talking about salvation, To get salvation, it is not based in what we do. It's not trusting Christ and works, and maybe I can, I trust in Christ, but I better do some good things in order to get that salvation. Because when we try to merge our works and Christ's work, then we are cutting God's glory in half. But when we trust Him and Him alone, then we're trusting fully on him for salvation. Salvation is not found in personal righteousness. And the question I want to ask you today is, are you trusting in your personal righteousness? Are you trusting in your religious works? Like how often you come to church, or if you've been baptized, or what you've done for the church, or what kind of generosity you have. Are you trusting in that to get to heaven? That will not save you. If you're trusting in your baptism, your church attendance, your good works, your generosity, if you're trusting in those things and you die trusting in that, you will spend eternity in hell. And that's a, that's a, it's a terrible thing. It's critically important you examine your heart today. It's not personal righteousness. It's not zeal. In fact, he says it's not doing. Look in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. 
Paul reminds us that, that, in that Leviticus 18.5, it says, "My Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am Yahweh. And the point Paul is making here is the, is the point that Moses was essentially making, that there, if a person wants to be righteous by following the law, they have to perfectly keep the law. 613 ordinances that are out there, they have to keep it perfectly in, in action and in mind, and it cannot be done. That was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to say, you need a Savior because you cannot keep this law. Paul uses this verse again in Romans 2.13, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. And again, he's saying it's not just hearing it and knowing it. We might read all the Old Testament and say, Boy, I know what that law says. And that does nothing for our righteousness toward salvation. But instead, it's the one who does it perfectly. Perfect in action, perfect in mind, perfect in spirit. And there is no one who has ever lived who has been able to keep it perfectly except Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of the law. And Galatians 3.12 says, The law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. The point is trying to do enough to get into heaven isn't faith. It's not faith to say, I'm doing more and more. I've got to do more to please God. And if I don't do this, then he's angry at me, and I've got to do more. And then I've sinned, and I've took a step back, and so I've got to do twice as much to get ahead. That is not salvation. That is trusting in your work. It is trusting in doing. And the righteousness God demands, Paul says here, isn't doing, it's done, is what he says it is the righteousness that's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. He says in 6 and 8, 6 through 8, the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart you'll go up to heaven, that is bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. He quotes here Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 20, where Moses has just told the people of God, if you follow the law, you will have blessings. And if you disobey the law, you're going to have curses. And I put before you a decision, life or death. And, I choose, uh, and today I want to encourage you to choose life, he says. That's, that's Deuteronomy 30. And Paul's making the parallel essentially saying, if you pursue Christ's righteousness and you, you trust in Him, you'll receive the blessings of eternal life. But if you're tr pursuing your own righteousness and trusting in your own righteous works, you'll receive condemnation for that because that will not save. And so he says salvation isn't something you have to go up to heaven and find out the answer and it's because heaven has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he's shown us what that is like. And we don't have to go to the grave to pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus already went to the grave and he rose again to pay the penalty for our sin. And he stood in our place. Instead, he says the message it's close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. 
He's going to say, it's in your mouth because all you have to do is confess that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. It's close. He's saying it is available to any person who's ever lived. It's available to them. It's not difficult. The righteousness God demands from us, that, and, and Paul here is echoing Moses, is saying it's as close as your mouth and it's close as in your heart because we can trust Christ and, and when we trust his accomplished righteousness, the righteousness that's done, we can have salvation. Mixing faith and works don't work for salvation. Picture two boats on a lake. And you've got a foot in each boat. Uh, little canoes, right? So you can straddle it. You've got your feet in both canoes. And one canoe has no holes in it and is sitting there fine. And the other one is full of holes. And it's filling full of water and it's sinking fast. What's going to happen? If you stay straddling in both, you're going to end up in the lake. The only safe place is to put both feet in the, in the boat with no holes. The boat with no holes is Jesus' perfect righteousness. And the boat with holes in it is our, is our life. It's our sinfulness that is causing the leaks. And if we try to straddle both boats, we're going to end up in the same place as if we had two feet in the boat with no holes. I mean, with all the holes. The only safe place is to fully stand on Jesus' righteousness alone. Maybe there's a better illustration or a different illustration. Maybe the boats, boats don't connect with you. Let's say you're standing on one cliff and across 100 feet is the other cliff you need to get across. It's 5,000 feet down and there's sharp rocks at the bottom. You need to get across and you've got a rope that is, that's an inch thick. It can hold 2,000 pounds of, of, of weight. And so if you could get it across, you could cross that chasm. The problem is you only have 50 feet of rope. But I come to you and I say, don't worry about it. I've got 50 feet of thread. Right? I'll tie my thread to your rope. We'll tie it on both sides. And then we can get across just fine. You think that'll work? No. You'll say, no, thank you. And I'll say, what's the matter? Don't you trust the rope? And you'll say, I trust the rope. I don't trust the thread. The rope is Jesus' perfect righteousness. The threads are, are my own works. Now, what if you had 90 feet of rope... And 10 feet of thread, would that work? Would, that, would, that, would you trust the rope then? That won't work. You can't get across. What if you had 99 feet of rope and just one foot of thread? Would that work? That won't work. Even if you had one inch of thread at the very end of that, you couldn't trust that rope going across that's the, that's the picture of us trusting in our works 
and Christ. It's not 50-50. It's not, I trust in Christ, and then I've got to do some stuff to make sure I keep that salvation, or there's some things I've got to do. That's not trusting wholly in Christ. And even if there's an inch, so to speak, of works that you're trusting in to gain salvation in Christ, you're going to end up in the same place as if there was 50 feet of rope and 50 feet of thread. Just a little bit of anything else other than Christ means you're not trusting wholly in Christ. And salvation is trusting in Christ's righteousness. So the question is, are you trusting in Christ's righteousness today? You need to surrender your righteous works and say, this will never save me. I need Christ. We need to trust Christ alone. That's, that's what salvation is. It's first, not trusting in your own works to obtain salvation. And second, and I think just as important, is placing Jesus on the throne of your life. Look in verses 9 through 12. He, he moves on and talks about a critical part of salvation that is overlooked today, and it's dangerous to overlook the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's many people who have said it. I might even said it not thinking about what I was saying, that someone says, I have Jesus Christ as my Savior, or someone, we might be talking about someone else, they have Jesus Christ as their Savior, they just don't have Him as Lord. And the Scripture makes absolutely no distinction of that. It makes no distinction like that. It doesn't say you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as your Lord. It says you have Jesus as your Savior, and He'll be your Lord. Both. And we need to examine our hearts about that. The word Lord is used 715 times in the New Testament. In Paul's writing, it shows up 275 times. In Romans alone, it shows up 43 times. It has the word that means someone who has control and authority over another. It was used of, a, of an owner of a slave or property. And saying Jesus is Lord is a powerfully rich phrase that says Jesus is in control of every aspect of my life. What he says goes. He is the Lord. He is the king of my life. He's sitting on the throne of my life and he directs every aspect of my life. Anyone can say Jesus is Lord. But what Paul is here is a confession saying Jesus is Lord in verse 9. See, a person is saved when they place Jesus on the throne of their life, and that's because Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Look what it says in verse 9, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Confess here means to agree, to proclaim. And when it was used in a legal arena, it was talking about someone publicly proclaiming the details of the relationship, so that was settled there was no doubt that that person was in some sort of relationship with the other person. It's not simply saying Jesus is Lord. It is a public proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. He runs my life. 
And if he says do this, then I do it. And if he says don't do that, I don't do that. And I follow what he has to say. He is king. He is Lord. Someone has said Jesus is either Lord of all or he is Lord, he's not Lord at all. Right? He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You can't have him Lord of part of your life. That's not what the word means. That's not what, Jesus, uh, what Paul is talking about here. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, Therefore I'm informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I mean, anyone can say it, but when you say it and mean it, it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in your life that you've been saved. And that means placing Jesus as Lord of your life. So is Jesus directing your life? Is he first place in every aspect of your life? Is he first place in your marriage? Is he first place in your parenting? Does he direct your free time, your recreation time? Is he the one leading you on, on how you spend your money and who you spend your time with and how you dress and how you talk and all those things? Is he directing those things in your life? Jesus as Lord means he is Lord. And everyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever will live will proclaim Jesus as Lord. At some point in time, look what it says in Philippians 2.9. For this reason, God has exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every single person is going to bow. Everyone is going to bow to Jesus. And you can do it willingly while you're on earth and say, I surrender to you and I'm going to make you Lord of my life. And then when you die trusting in him, you will spend eternity with him. And you confess him the Lord, make him Lord of your life, you will have salvation. And those who will not bow their knee to Jesus will not make him Lord of their life. And they die in that 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 situation, that condition, rejecting Jesus, they will still bow to him. They'll bow to him under compulsion. They'll bow their knee and they will say, Jesus is Lord. And then they will be sent away to a place the scripture calls hell. Hell that is, that is weeping of gnashing of teeth where the fire never is quenched and the worm doesn't die that Jesus says it is a terrible place and the last thing they will do is confess that Jesus is Lord and spend eternity separated from him salvation is critically important for you today Every person will bow their knee and I'm telling you you want to do that now surrender to him because he is Lord Whether you recognize that or not, He is the Lord of creation. And He's Lord of creation because He is Yahweh. He is is the Lord. the, The word Lord in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the divine name 
The King James translates it Jehovah. It's probably more accurately translated Yahweh. And what Paul is saying when he quotes in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he's quoting Joel 2.32, which says the exact same thing. But the Lord that's used in Joel 2 is the divine name. Anyone who will call upon Yahweh will be saved. Paul uses that as, as an identification of Jesus and says that Jesus is in fact Yahweh. He is the covenant God of Israel. He is the creator and sustainer of life. He is the redeemer God. He is the one throughout the whole Old Testament who protects his people, provides for his people, redeems his people. And Jesus Christ is the incarnation, the physical manifestation of Yahweh God. He is Lord because He is the King of creation. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And I love what the psalmist says in 16.2. He says, I said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Believer can say that about Jesus. I have nothing good besides you, Jesus. Having Jesus in your life as Lord means he is the one authority to direct you. Vance Hafner said, a wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. He goes on to say, there's no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is either Lord of your life or he is not. And we have to examine where we're at in that. Maybe today you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You like the saving part of the relationship. You don't want to go to hell. And so you ask Jesus into your life so that you could save you. But you don't like the idea of anyone controlling what you do and where you go and how you live. Well, that's not the deal. The deal is he is Savior and Lord. A slave doesn't go to his master and say, you know what, Um, you have me doing some of these things and I like, but I'm not going to do the rest of this. That's not how a slave behaves. And the scripture says in Romans 6, this is not on the screen, but I encourage you just to listen. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? Either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And that obedience isn't good works. It is the obedience of surrendering to Jesus Christ. He says, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. If that's too much, you can just remember Bob Dylan's song, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? You're going to have to serve somebody. And you're either sitting, sitting here today, either Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, or sin is the Lord of your life. Scripture says you can't have a middle path. doesn't mean we're perfect if we have Jesus Lord of our life. 
But if you're trusting in your works to get to, sal- to get to salvation, to get to heaven, if you're trusting something other than Jesus Christ, sin is the Lord of your life. Make him Lord of your life. Make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. That's what salvation is. It is trusting in, trusting in the righteousness of God that's found in Jesus Christ by faith. And it is placing Jesus on the throne of your life. And he finishes this section by telling us how to start. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To obtain salvation, you call on the Lord and ask him to be Lord of your life and sit on the throne of your life. When a person does that, they're saved. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do today. If you're sitting here and you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, you've been in church your whole life, that's not what I'm asking. I was baptized as a kid. That's not what I'm asking. I'm a pretty good person. That's not what I'm asking. Are you trusting in Jesus, Jesus Christ's accomplished righteousness? And have you placed him on the throne of your life? That's what I'm asking. If you were to stand before God and he would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And if your answer is based in your righteousness, the scripture says you're on your way to hell. If your answer is based on the righteousness of Christ that is obtained by faith, then you are saved. Praise God. If your answer is, I was baptized a long time ago, you're trusting in your own works. If you answer, I'm pretty good, I'm hoping my good outweighs my bad, that is not salvation. Maybe you're sitting here today, you think you have Jesus as your Savior, but He is not the Lord of your life. It doesn't work that way. You need to surrender control of your life over to Him today. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think about this. If you need Christ today, I'm going to say a prayer. And the prayer will be something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I've been working hard to gain righteousness so that I can have eternal life. And I confess today that my righteousness is not what you demand. I need your righteousness. I surrender my thoughts and my actions and my life to you. And I give my life to you so you can be my Lord Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Make me the person you want me to be. I'm going to pray a prayer just like that. And I tell you what that prayer is so that you can say, that's something that resonates in my heart. And if that's a prayer that expresses the desire of your heart, and you pray that prayer earnestly, it's not the prayer, the words are not magic, it's the expression of the heart. But if you pray a prayer like that, Scripture says Jesus will come into your life, he'll take control of the throne of your life, and he will save you. So if you've never prayed a prayer like that, you can pray this prayer after me silently. Jesus will save you. Lord Jesus, 
I need you. I've been working hard to gain my righteousness so I can have eternal life. I confess today that my righteousness falls short of what you demand. I need your righteousness. I surrender my thoughts, my actions, my life to you. I give my life to you so you can be my Lord. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Make me the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.